This episode is made possible in part by Donate Pizza, where dough does good. Um, I recently had an episode with Angelo Corso, and he's been partnering with at least 50 pizzerias in the city. And collectively, he and his volunteers are able to donate pizzas, quality pizzas, some of them are even gluten-free and vegan, to the homeless shelters in Chicago. If you're interested in donating or volunteering your time, please check them out at DonatePizza.com. That's D-O-U-G-H-N-A-T-E-Pizza.com. Cheers. This episode is made available in part by Chicago EMT Training. As an EMT, you'll gain the ability to recognize and manage any medical illness or traumatic injury. It's one of the best ways to get your feet wet in healthcare. You can be working alongside techs, nurses, PAs, physicians, paramedics, and firefighters. Chicago EMT Training hosts a class every fall, spring, and summer. Visit ChicagoEMTTraining.com if you're interested. I am Consciously Curious, a podcast for those that are searching for a career or cultivating meaning within their own space. We've had anesthesia providers to barbers, dog behaviors to airline pilots, white collar to blue collar, entrepreneurs to passion projects. Life's too short to not produce meaningful work. Join me, Victor Chan, as we deep dive within various industries. I'd love to hear your feedback, so feel free to leave a comment. I hope you find some value within these conversations, but more importantly, I hope it sparks a meaning within your own space. Our next guest shares her journey of deprogramming from the beauty industry. We explore some of the exhausting standards that women have been raised to meet. She's attentive, thoughtful, and resolute. She has a knack for stirring up discussions about self-worth in relation to the beauty industry on her Instagram page, Not Your Manic Pixie Dream Curl. I hope you listen to this with an open mind and reflect on how it makes you feel. More often than not, that feeling of being triggered is a reflection of inner dissonance. Please enjoy my conversation with Helen. Helen. Hello. Welcome. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. (laughs) You're a married man now. Yeah. um, I've probably done, maybe this is the second, I think, second episode um, after the wedding. Mm -hmm. And Justina and I are, are, uh, we haven't set a date yet, but uh, we want to hop back on after the wedding. Just do another post-wedding powwow of like how to how to go it was the best day ever it was Aww. it was amazing i love that um and we're in the process of like buying prints and albums and uh it always brings a tear <laughs> um but uh do you think of yourself as a romantic uh yeah i, I think i try to be um a hopeless romantic as far a as romantic. yeah in, in the sense of like having certain ideals um, of what life could be like with a partner. Um, and to be honest, like it just uh, feels almost too easy, uh, seamless, complimentary with Justine. Um, you know, she, it, it's, uh, she has my back no matter what. Uh, and it's very safe and reassuring to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, because prior to meeting Justine, um, I was of the perspective of not much would change, uh, after a wedding. Um, and it has, it has in, in, in the sense of, um, that feeling of, 
of safety. Um, on the more superficial side, introductions, like there's more weight when you introduce each other as husband, wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially to new people. But um, on a day-to-day, I, I guess, logistically, not much has changed. Um, but it's that knowing that like someone will always be there for you. I think calling yourself a hopeless romantic seems like an oxymoron. That's mm. obviously full of hope. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> it's a bit paradoxical. I know what you mean because that's how people use the phrase, but okay, that, it that does mean not, a hopeful person. Now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, and the, the main reason, it's so insightful and so so much wisdom to share. And that's one of the reasons why um, I feel like this is going to be a meaningful conversation. Um, through the community and the platform that you've been able to cultivate, there's with with each video, which with each caption, there's so much thought, intention, wisdom, um, and truth um, that you're trying to impart on people. And some people feel triggered; other people embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't deny. Um, the effect, uh, whatever type of effect, but it, it has had many meaningful effects on a lot of people, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I don't know too many people that are trying, that are accomplishing what you're doing um, by initiating conversations around deprogramming and the beauty industry, um, body image, self-love, stuff like that. Um, I don't, I don't know many people like that. And so like it's, you, I'm an idealist. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, a joy to have you here and, uh, and to, uh, to learn. I'm ready to learn. So it's an I, honor to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I'm like seeing behind the scenes after so many episodes. What, what do you of, think? I think you are a lot more wires than you thought or it's a lot of wires. <laughs> it's a lot of wires. I do love the wires. Uh, no, I love it. You are so like, savvy and creative and I love how you've managed yeah. having this space. It's uh recently got, got a sponsor. Um, but this whole time it should have been sponsored. Um, the EMT class sponsored. I mean, I'm using the space, right? So I, yeah. sh- I just never mentioned it before. And like, I've only started probably two episodes ago of like, this is sponsored by such and such. Um, it's awesome. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I still don't have like a concrete vision as to where this is going to go. Um, but, uh, I'm having fun along the way. I can't say I'm, I'm learning to become this way, but being someone who cares and enjoys the journey rather than fixating mm. on a destination, I think is a rarer and I'm not discounting happier I way think, of going through life. I think it's important to have some sense Goals of idea, are great. right? right Ambition's like a, great. A direction. Um, but so is uh, enjoyment and true mm. leisure and mm. doing things for the sake of themselves. Yeah. So... Um, what, uh, what's been on your mind recently? What's been like occupying the space? Welcome home, by the way. I'm so happy to be back. You have no idea. (laughs) Chicago is just such a feast for the eyes. Even when I got off the L train nearby, I like, there was a Lutheran church and the light was perfectly coming through the stained glass and, Mm. I was thinking about how important beauty is Mm. to human beings. Like it is one of the greatest wirings of our brain to be attracted to beauty. Yeah. And 
when you particularly look at so many old buildings that had like specialty craftsmen, like give so much niche yeah. attention and spe- like Artisanal expertise in yeah, a way, yeah. to it, like those buildings have such lasting power and, you know, they appeal to things that you can say it's perhaps because we're accustomed to them, but mm. I do think that there are certain like geometric truths Mm. that lead to our brain being like, yes, this is beautiful. Really? And yeah, I mean, and you know, this is something that like Renaissance painters, for example, have like mastered the art of balance within portraitures. And that was like part of what took them out of like more two dimensional medieval and Fibonacci. Yeah. Yeah. And the realism and balance and all of that, like there are things that like literally make our brains light up Mm. in ways that other things don't. And then there's, of course, like more subjective forms of beauty. Like I don't personally look at some like surrealist stuff and think it's beautiful, but my husband does. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, kind of is reminding me of a nightmare. <laughs> He's like, Dali is a genius. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm going to go to the it. next room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> but, you know, I being back in Chicago, like so much care went into the creation of our city and you know we're constantly talking about moving back here and we have like a plan over the next few years with his job and stuff but it has been so much a part of like what's created me to grow up in a place that cares about like architectural integrity Mm. and what that says about the culture and having you know stonemasons or stained glass window makers and marble work and carpenters who know how to make beautiful things Mm -hmm. and how even like a standard two flat from a hundred years ago is more beautiful than so many Mm. like almost sterile boxes. Yeah. Like things of right now. Um, recently had an architect on, we, we, we did, she, she has a knack for, um, and I'll show you the book, but, uh, of modernism, but making it warm in a way it doesn't feel cold. Um, yeah, not all modernism does. I think lighting yeah. dramatically helps and even like particular shades of neutrals yeah. can help that so much. Um, but when I think about so many like mega apartments or dorms, mm-hmm. there's just something that feels so sterile. So it, it, it's more function over form? Yeah. And I think that there's like a certain like bottom line that goes into the creation of those things. And so going above and beyond for creating like dental work as it's called in certain like wood pieces in order to like frame a door or to create kind of like beautiful baseboards or it's just a lot of attention doesn't go into that anymore. And a lot of Mm. those trades just don't have the same number of people in them anymore. So Mm -hmm. it's so much more expensive to have those little touches. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't try to like superimpose everything should have been made the way it was a hundred years ago. But I do think that. Mm. Cause I was, I was going to ask like, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get, get some of that. Back. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think there just are things that are like, people have different tastes of course, but mm. I've been in so many homes where I'm kind of like, sure, this like style isn't exactly my taste, but I can recognize that it's beautiful. Yeah. And so there's certain balances and understandings of things where like we recognize and crave that beauty. Mm. And yet 
in order to have like the least expensive furnishings or apartment buildings, we've created very unoriginal things that have very little detail or dimension that like humans just crave. I feel like your side hustle could be like a vintage furniture dealer. My husband would get on that. <laughs> People like come into our home and they're like, I love your furniture. You did such a great job decorating. I'm like, I've, Mr. Engineer, who knows exactly how things are. He picked out everything. I picked out nothing. Okay. Because he's like looking at literally how everything is made. And okay. he has certain standards. And I honestly couldn't even tell you them. Uh, With but, materials, but like also an, an understanding and recognition of... Um, maybe the style or the history or the story behind a certain piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I, that's what I felt from hearing mm-hmm. you talk about architecture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like all people love beauty. Yeah. And I am starved for it in Orange County. <laughs> beauty, beauty in the physical sense. Um, but does it also like when you, when you walk into a certain space, do you feel certain things then? Absolutely. I think a lot of people I know have discussed experiences where if they grew up in like more emotionally cold families, you know, maybe their families were very wealthy or something and they had very modern, expensive Mm. furnishings or art, but it didn't feel homey. Mm. And for them going into much more like humble homes that are happier or more welcoming, like there is a invisible beauty Mm. that you can like feel in the timber of the Invisible but palpable, yeah. Yeah, your surroundings are reflective of the individuals that fill them Mm -hmm. it's very cyclical I think that about people too Mm. you know they're back when I was dating I talked about how like online dating is such a strange way to meet people and one of my sisters pointed out um two famous actors one of whom is like known for being super attractive but not necessarily like funny he normally does like kind of really serious self-important roles and Mm. another actor just does comedy but he's not necessarily conventionally, you know, like hunky. Yeah. And she said, if you were on an online dating profile and you just saw pictures of these people, people would pick the hunky one. Mm. But if you were on an online dating profile that had like video clips and you could see more like of who they are and what it's like to be around them and not just like a profile of their face. She's like, most women would actually go for the funnier actor who's easier and warmer to be around. And I think about that a lot because I've known a lot of people where their personalities like, or the like joy and beauty of like their spirit is just so pleasurable to be around. And a lot of those people, you know, had their choice in dating or there's just like something about them, you know, the je ne sais quoi. And, but they're not people that you would necessarily likened to the top models or actors or whatever of the day. Yeah. And so I think, or, or it's just people have a hard time, um, summing up who they are, uh, in a, into a profile. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's tricky. Uh, and you, it makes you wonder like, what should I put on here? What, what's going to get the most amount of swipes, you know, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably say most married couples, if you ask them like what they liked most about the other, 
or what attracted them initially to each other. It's probably not something that that person would have said about themselves. Mm. I feel like we normally find qualities in other people that are more invisible to them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, that rare intersection of like what we wanted and what we didn't know we want. Mm. So I don't think we're always amazing judge of characters of ourselves. And I think sometimes the very fast pace of online dating can Mm -hmm. contribute more to like objectifying people and to like cutting us down to certain core things or even like satellite things that we just think are going to be flashy or helpful in that kind of a dating market. Yeah. So would, would you, I guess, giving advice to people that um, are currently dating, I currently say don't completely close yourself off to online dating. Um, but you know, what's in your control is like how you present yourself um, in any capacity, whether that's in person or on an app. Um, what would you share? Like, would you like be completely like get off the apps? Like, or how would you help someone navigate that? I do know happy couples who've met online. So I, you know, I wouldn't say no to it completely. Yeah. But what I say in general is that a lot of people are misguided in thinking I need to get as many dates as possible or as many matches Mm. as possible. And in reality, it is better to go on fewer quality dates than to like, be talking with a bunch of people who are moderately or poorly suited to you. Mm. And I think especially in how we socialize women, it's like they're raised to think like, I need to be widely wanted Mm. when in reality, like if you are dating for marriage, like which not everybody is, but if you are, it is by its very nature exclusive. You know, you are trying to find one person. I I saw it. (laughs) the other day on social media of like trying more so to think about the number of people you actually turned down rather than the number of people that you said yes to. There's the, you know, the whole verbiage of like body count uh, of just like sharing that. But what's more impressive is like actually the number of people you turned down in a way. Well, prudence and self-control and everything else is important in a marriage because I feel like everyone has a capacity to be unfaithful, but to be able to delay gratification, to say no to oneself, to weather difficult times, like that is what's going to make for a strong marriage. So practicing those parts of yourself now while you're dating and not married, like is going to make you a better spouse later. hundred percent. Um, and I'm sure it was tough in the heart of the pandemic to just like not, to not have any, some people just were super lonely, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they just uh, were seeking some external validation or just a support system. And, and you might, you know, subconsciously prioritize that over finding your partner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it does stem down, come, boil down to the image of yourself and how you think about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if that, if we use that as a, as a springboard, um, what, what were some experiences that helped launch you into this self-discovery of like, I don't have to be doing these things to my body anymore to, to, 
I don't know if you can probably say it better than I, but like to feel loved or to, to feel wanted or to be seen, which I think that at the human experience, I think we all want to feel seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those terms, like what were some experiences that made you think twice about, or maybe people that you talk to, like think twice about like, should I be doing this? Sure. Uh, there were so many things. And to be honest, I was not like a quick convert. Mm. It was a very difficult road for me. Um, I had a lot of early seeds that were planted. I, my friends joke, I'm the token white person in my friend group. (laughs) (laughs) So when I started talking more with my friends, especially in like dorm situations where, you know, you're all living and sharing the same bathroom, like about some of our habits and like how long we're going to be or like our schedules. It was something where I started realizing that my friends who had like much darker hair than I did and then like medium or lighter skin were spending way more time removing hair, even if it was hair that was never going to be seen. Mm. And I immediately intuited like, the disparate impact Mm. of these standards of hairlessness because like I've never shaved my forearms. I have hair, but it's like blonde hair because I was a blonde kid. And thinking about friends who are like Asian having like a very strong contrast between their body hair and their skin, Mm -hmm. spending an incredible amount of time from like for some of them, the ages of like nine or 10 onward, constantly focusing on removing Mm. hair I had moments where I was just like the knee jerk reaction of like, this is unfair. Mm. And it really bothered me. And I like in my own body cannot necessarily show the example of keeping arm hair because you'd have to be like up close next to me to see it. But there were other things where I realized like I, within certain like privileges, in society was at an advantage, but I was furthering the goalpost with my behavior, with hair removal and dyeing my hair and straightening my hair and using a lot of makeup. Mm. And So what was the original goal then? My original goal was to tease out am I doing these things like actually for myself or have I been taught Mm -hmm. to do them for myself? Mm -hmm. And even like realizing things like like when people do like no shave November, no shave winter, (laughs) I was kind of like, all right, well, we're basically proving we're not doing it for ourselves because Mm -hmm. if it was really for ourselves, then when we are dressed in a way that still doesn't show it, we would still be doing it. Mm. Do women do No Shave November? (laughs) Women will often (laughs) joke in response to No Shave November, try No Shave Winter. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, right? Yeah. And... Which which is telling, right? That's just like, why do we then? Well, it's the cognitive dissonance (laughs) of it. And so, like, I just started observing these things, and it didn't necessarily, like, influence all of my behavior. And I, I did things bit by bit where I gave up this and then that. And certain things are just harder for other people, than others. Like for me, giving up makeup was a lot harder than like 
chopping off all my hair. Like I had your hair mm. <laughs> like four or five years ago when I had had it like down to here in bleach blonde. Did you like it? I loved it. I love having short hair. It is. <laughs> my hair takes so long to dry. And like when you live in Chicago, it's something yeah, where like, yeah. it's just super inconvenient, particularly in the winter because you don't want to go outside with wet hair. That is like, a noob move. Like you mm. do not want your hair to like freeze and break off. <laughs> so like having really long hair that takes a long time to dry is it like offers me no utility and having like damaged bleach hair because like people like me who had really blonde hair and then that like changed at puberty and became more of a mm. dirty blonde. Mm. There's like a lot of weird stigma around losing the blonde hair. And that's mm. like, in what way? Negative stigma? Or? Yeah. Oh. That like the blonder hair is the better effectively. Mm. Mm. And in some ways that's like upholding uh, certain childlike tendencies of beauty because there's mm. different forms of melanin and like a common one uh, that happens in blondes is that like it was always going to darken over time. Mm. And obviously some people are still light blondes, you know, into their adulthood, but there's a lot more people who are blonde children who become kind of like light brown haired okay. people. And I remember like in middle school receiving a ton of like sexual harassment from my peers about being a dirty blonde. And oh. it's so stupid now, obviously, but like being sexualized because this sign of puberty that's normal in blondes was happening to me it was just it made my skin crawl it really bothered me and dyeing my hair allowed me to hold on to this thing that so you, I was you would over. dye it more blonde mm-hmm. oh okay and that would get me more compliments about being super blonde I mean like a lot of people get a ton of compliments disproportionately for being blonde yeah and like you know I would point to that and just be like like a racist beauty standard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Superimpose that um, as like better hair than other hair or something. Cause every single hair color has its beauty. Were, were other people in your grade doing that too? Yes. Oh wow. Absolutely. It was like a very common thing. Okay. Like to the point that hair salons would have on their menu, like teen highlights. Oh, wow. So being blonde, like being Regina George or something was yeah. like the goal for people in my circles. I've never dyed my hair, but it's, it's damaging, right? Mm-hmm. So when you started to notice that, was there any dissonance of like, Oh, like it's worth it. Or like, you know, is it worth it? I know some people swear that they think it's worth it. Mm. Uh, I think especially if you have textured hair, it's very difficult to maintain like any kind of curl texture mm. if you're bleaching it because bleach opens up the hair follicle, which will like change the porosity of your hair and it does damage it. And I know that people have tried formulating uh, different, like different types of chemicals in hair salons to make it less damaging, but virgin hair, as they put it, is absolutely healthier. Mm. So it just... For some people, they feel like it's totally worth it to be blonde, even if it like damages their curls. But for a lot of yeah. like, I've seen a lot of botched jobs where like literally people's hair has just broken off in giant chunks from all of the chemical shock. I think a lot of what we do in life, it's a game of incentives. Um, and at that point, um, 
just thinking about like what are they getting back in return for doing some of these things mm -hmm. to their hair or their body um do you try to come from the angle of shining awareness on like how to cultivate a, another type of like self love or self of the body in in a way cuz is that what's the, what's the root cause of this then right while there have been certain like beauty standards or like trends throughout time and while some cultures, you know, had makeup as a more prominent part of their culture, you know, at different eras or mm. earlier than what we're looking at, we are in like an unprecedented era of between global marketing and having these kind of like international media influences at play mm. of women spending far more time, money, effort, changing themselves sometimes permanently for trends that do often change every few years. And I want people to love who they are, like inherently who they are to the point that like, if anything happened to dramatically change their appearance, they would still be filled with self-respect self-love and still feel deeply their humanity mm -hmm. but I don't love the body positive movement because I think if we are still focused on liking our appearances it's mm. a bit of a difficult game because our appearances are meant to change mm. so while we have like a very ageist understanding of like what's beautiful um mm coming to like what you look like right now, like you're, you're just not going to look like that in five or 10 years. Okay. And so I actually would encourage people to have like neutrality about how they look, but mm. love who they are. Okay. And to see themselves as inherently valuable, worthwhile, loved, lovable, regardless of other people's opinions of how much they want to bang them. It's almost like detach yourself yeah. From the physical side of things. Yeah. That's, it's, that's hard. It is. <laughs> that's so hard. It is. It is. And I, I've had some like incredibly difficult things happen where I've had like far more time to contemplate and have to face what that means. Mm -hmm. Like in 2018, I had like horrible nerve flare-ups in my feet and I didn't know what was happening, but I lost the ability to walk properly mm. for months. Like I was on bed rest for almost seven months mm. and I didn't know if I was going to like regain full feeling in my feet. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. I couldn't drive. I couldn't do stairs by myself. I lived on the second floor, like, and a bunch of that was over winter time. So like ice was not mm. <laughs> like I had to have someone walk with me yeah. and almost like half carry me in order to get around. And I was in wheelchairs for part of that wow. time. And so to be at that time, you know, like unmarried, cooped up in my home, not knowing how able-bodied I was ever going to be again, I had a lot of alone time to think about how much of my life I had attached to being able-bodied mm. or like pretty and looking a certain way to then suddenly having a very 
solitary life. Mm. And in a lot of ways, it was a very fruitful like hermitage, but most people aren't going to, like the average person isn't going to have some like crazy medical thing happen that really benches them. Yeah. But some people do. And I would propose to people that it's better to have something else that you anchor your worth in than Mm. something you might lose or something you're definitely going to lose, like your looks. Mm -hmm. And to do so before life kicks you on your ass. (laughs) Yeah. I I think uh, that's huge in in the sense of like, I think where a lot of people are lost um, in their identity because they haven't spent enough time figuring out what they actually value and what they enjoy and what they dislike and what they don't agree with. That alone, I mean, mm-hmm. is huge. And I, I do think that that is a shortcoming of some of the like openness or relativism mm. that we currently live in. I'm not, I'm like made by America, so I'm not like, I wouldn't wish it away necessarily, but there's pros and cons to everything. Everything's a double-edged sword. And I do think that one edge of the sword is that by not having that many shared values or not being able to like more universally appreciate just having certain building blocks of what like we as a community believe in, it's very, very intensive and exhausting to self-invent your whole value system. Mm. Whereas historically, like most human beings didn't have to completely self-invent their value system, Mm. you know? And while some value systems throughout the world were like super different, like I wouldn't necessarily equate like the value system of like Shintoism with that of, you know, certain pagan religions or that of like Islam or something. But having some building blocks and then being able to interrogate those, I think is less exhausting and mm. less likely to leave to like anxious panic attacks of your self-invention mm. than literally needing to build from the ground up. Yeah. So were, were there certain people around you or things that you were reading or consuming that helped, helped you through that solitary time? Yes. I read a lot of books on grief. Mm. Um, my dad died 10 years ago. And I found a lot of those books on grief to be extremely helpful because most of my peers hadn't gone through a loss in their immediate families or had never even been at a deathbed of like an extended family member. And I didn't really have like peers or something. Like there wasn't like some great support group for people my age who had like watched someone die. And so I had gotten into like reading about grief like 10 years ago, but five years ago, I think, five years ago, um, I read more and it was very helpful for me to realize how much of myself I had like anchored in very like temperamental type of things. Temperamental in what sense? It can be lost like that. Oh. And like hinging yourself on something like that is. Or not realizing how temperamental something could be. Yes. Or is. Yeah. You know, like my husband and I talk about that about each other all the time. And like, I asked him a few weeks ago, like, do you ever think about me dying? And he's like, yeah, all the time. (laughs) And I was like, like you're, like you're planning it. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, (laughs) why are you like this? (laughs) 
I was like, I watched a lot of SVU. So, (laughs) and no, but he was like, so I actually have a crypt already, like a two person crypt in Chicago. Hmm. And we're, we're living in California for his job right now. And he said that he has been thinking about how we need to set aside a certain amount of money for like shipping just in case that there's like an emergency because he knows that it's very important to me to be buried back in Chicago in my crypt. Oh, wow. And so he said that he thinks a lot about like how we need to change the budget and like literally just start allocating stuff to that so that like it's all set up and nobody else has to deal with like both the shocking pain of us most likely suddenly dying as young people who are still kind of newlyweds um, and that they can just kind of do what we've prepared and not like scramble to figure out how to like make it work or pay for it. He was thinking about this? Yes. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I think about him dying when I'm thinking that I am sometimes inappropriately like over anchoring and enmeshing my happiness in him. Okay. There's a certain amount of like normal interdependent, like yeah. balance of being married. And that's like, that's completely normal. Right. But like in both my mother and in like many other people in my family, I've seen what widowhood is like. Oh. And I don't want to be like, at a certain end of that spectrum. Like sure, there's sure. a certain amount of which I want to feel like my life had value before I ever met him. Yeah. And I love my life so much more now that he's in it, but that I would be healthy enough to get through another giant period of grief wow. without like, <laughs> and this was in those books. I, yeah, I thought a lot about it. There's a famous, C.S. Lewis quote that goes, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Which, of course, it's a little tongue-in-cheek because you can lose everything. Mm. Except your faith. Mm. Like, you can keep your faith throughout everything if you want to. Mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, especially because our vows focus so much on until death do us part, like, Mm that's like that's ahead of us and also because of our faith we do think a lot about our death like part of living like living well is dying well Mm. and because I've had so many people in my family die at like young ages or like very suddenly or whatever like I have thought about my mortality like very seriously since I was seven years old oh wow (laughs) my aunt died when I was seven and I was like that like really hit me where I was like I will die one day Yeah. And I think, for example, my friends sometimes comment on me being like sometimes flowery or goopy with my language. And I'm just like in my head, I'm like, if I die, I don't want you to be second guessing how I feel about you. Like, you know, I love you. Like you're, And so in being vulnerable, I know that the people I love, when they grieve me, it won't be grieving. What were we? Mm, more of a celebration. Yeah. I agree. I, I, I think most people don't think about death the way you do. And I, I think about not. a lot of, a lot of it too. Definitely haven't made plans like that though. Um, but, uh, 
But yeah, the, a lot of what ifs. Like you, you would want your loved one or your partner to be able to. I guess I'm coming from it from a logistical standpoint of like mm-hmm. be able to be independent, take care of yourself. But from the identity perspective, that's very interesting and important as well. Um, in previous relationships, like I've, you know, uh, maybe lose yourself in that relationship. Um, you just get so entangled in a way. Yeah, enmeshed. <laughs> um, I love that so much. Have you ever thought about what, what if we get to a point or society gets to a point where we live forever? Have you ever I thought have, about that at all? I've never entertained would, would, would that. There, would there be, would life be as meaningful if that was the case? This is like the age old question, isn't it? Where does our meaning come from? I think, I think it's a very different framed question for people who believe in God or believe in any form of an mm-hmm. afterlife than people who don't. Which is, I always ask people this, it's just like, do you need to believe in an afterlife to be granted access? To the afterlife if it's there? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I you know, like your entrance is predicated on the belief of it. Believing it alone is not... Uh, and, and and hearing, you know. Yeah. In the structure of, like, my religious beliefs, like, just believing that there is an afterlife isn't enough to, like, get you past the pearly gates. Yeah. It's about living well and therefore dying well. And it's, like, a bizarre dynamic that people can have deathbed conversions and that can... Can you explain what it, what's a deathbed conversion? That people can have lived their lives antithetical to the tenets of that faith but in the last part of their life or like literally on their deathbed convert in their change of heart okay and believe or you know renounce things that they did that were selfish or bad or whatever sure um and like it's really about how you end that's so interesting but you never know when you're gonna end so you should be just living like you might end okay okay yeah and we'll never know if that person made it. No. And like Catholics do have like a way of trying to figure out like the canonization of certain saints. And there's like all these different metrics that go into it. And there are people where we may have like perhaps greater reason to hope than others. But like we we hope, you know, everybody goes to heaven but it's also something where we believe that hell is self-imposed people Mm. go to hell because they hate god Mm. so god doesn't like hate anybody people hate god and like you wouldn't want to be somewhere if you hated that person right or that being so it's it's viewed as a self-imprisonment not a sentencing hell yeah interesting so it's like um it's a mystery. Like, you know, we can spend our whole lives contemplating it and people have yeah. spent the millennia contemplating it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I agree um, that having uh, death uh, 
not knowing when death is going to be at your you know mm-hmm. front door um at least personally pushes me to try to squeeze as much juice out of out of life yeah, get your mileage get your mileage be a good person if i can help you know a few people along the way that's great mm-hmm. um how long have you been running this page i think i might have started it in 2018 or 2019 okay um and and what's that journey been like it began as a way for me to document my like cutting off of my hair and having mm. it grow out for the first time seeing my real color and real texture mm. undamaged and the more i embraced and teased out those feelings of like manipulating my image to look a certain way into accepting how I look or like my default, I just kept doing it about more and more things. And I don't, I don't agree on every, uh, with every tenant of radical feminists, but I do agree with them about makeup and reading some of their works about that type of thing, about those types of things radicalized me further into being like, this just isn't, this isn't in service of women. Like Mm. this isn't, I don't want to be a part of it basically anymore. Okay. And, I felt especially that I had a duty as like a very light-skinned, light-haired woman to mm. not further the goalpost into beauty standards that are so difficult to maintain and unrealistic for the vast majority of the population just because I've been in this... I was born into a position of privilege within that system where I had more advantages over other women. Yeah. So I didn't want to continue to like shove other women down by like by wearing makeup yeah and like manipulating myself further i think you've gotten this pushback before um but people would say like you're naturally beautiful and so it's easy it's easy it's such a backhanded compliment when they say that (laughs) to not wear makeup (laughs) you are so beautiful shut up and you're like that is so progressive of you telling women to sit down because she's beautiful, but then also asking for like allyship. Mm. You know, it's a catch 22. Um, yeah. I yeah. like the funny thing is that when I was growing up, like there were certain like privileges in terms of just being like white or whatever that gave me like those privileges or advantages, but there were like, they just pick apart everything. And so, like, they'll be like, we love white people, but we want them to have black women lips. Or, like, like when I was growing up, freckles were out. And, like, think about, like, the Victoria's Secret Angels movement. Like, I don't look like that. Like, that is not how puberty came for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, like, when I think about how often I had deficits pointed out to me, mm. rather than having, like, well, this is all good, and this is, like, standardly accepted. Like... I, like all women, was constantly picked on for my appearance. And so I might have been, like, I still think it was, like, I was picked on less than other women because, like I said, for example, like, I didn't have really dark, hairy arms. Mm. And hearing from nearly all of my friends that they had some horrible moment on the bus when they were children of being called apes or monkeys by the boys on the bus. Oh, wow. I was, like, I never went through that. I went through, like, other things. But, like, I don't, think there's like any woman even if she does totally adhere to everything who feels celebrated for who she is like it's meant to be a losing game for people 
And so even if it maybe affected me less in certain ways, I was still like psychologically brainwashed into thinking I had a giant checklist of things to change about myself. Mm. And now it's funny because I look at all of these videos of like women using henna or like liquid eyeliner to like fake freckles when like oh, really? freckles were like out and ugly. You know, when yeah. I was younger, I'm just kind of like, and the world turns. <laughs> yeah. Those, those filters on, on social media mm-hmm. just add freckles. And people are like now, like it's so cute. But when I was little, it was like seen as like dumpy skin damage mm. and you know, there's a lesson in there. <laughs> you can frame anything however you want. And honestly, people should just game their own brain to like feel good about whatever it is that they got. And like the more you realize that these things, like it's always a moving goalpost, right? Mm. So when you think about like eyebrows, fantastic example. Like mm. in the 90s, it was like skinny eyebrows that mm-hmm. were almost invisible. Mm-hmm. And then like, they were maybe a little bit more moderate, but still like pretty thin throughout the 2000s. And then it was like, like people were getting like hair transplants and like tattoos. Thicker. To make them look thick. To try to get some of the like 80s look back. Wow. And so when you think about how a bunch of women permanently damaged the hair follicles for their eyebrows and then had to like go through estheticians and stuff to try to undo the trend that they damaged themselves for. Yeah. Like that's a fantastic example of how like literally the goalpost moves because it helps them sell shit. We're so, all going to celebrate unibrows one day. Potentially. I would love Who that. Knows? I would love that. Like so many people have it. Like, you know, it shouldn't just be Frida Kahlo. There should, <laughs> there should be other people where we're like, yeah, that's just what you look like. Yeah. I think a lot about the thought experiment of, if somehow magically overnight there was no more cosmetics or everyone was returned to what they looked like, mm. there's no way to buy it, there's no way to remove your body hair, our idea of what humanity looks like would be so different. And then we'd get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. And do I like think that the entire world is going to necessarily embrace unibrows? No. But do I think it's like fair for little girls to have so much of their mental bandwidth taken up with that during mm. like their important developmental years and to spend so much time worried about what they look like at school rather than what they're learning at school or who they're meeting at school? Like, no, it's this ridiculous yeah. tax on the peace of women. And that's what I care about. I want women to have peace. And not that every man has peace with his body, but like, I remember my ex-boyfriend, he was kind of like, stuff about men's body tends to be something like, we like tall men, which, you know, either it works in your favor or it doesn't. Or it's like things that have to do with being healthy. Yeah, it's usually it's like a muscle thing too. And I've had men point out like that steroid use is growing and that that's oh. a bad thing. And like, it, which is it is, like I'm not promoting steroids. But that's like a funny example of how steroid use affects like 1% of American men. Whereas like makeup and hair removal affects pretty much a hundred percent of women mm. and makeup and hair removal for women is gender policed both by other women and by men. Whereas mm. there's almost no women who are like, I love that you can't turn your head. I love that your neck is like that thick. 
that with your steroid use, you just can't look to your left. I love that. Like, no, there's almost no woman I can think of. There may be like one, but that's not like something where women are like in a place of authority over men and enforcing this unrealistic, damaging beauty standard. No, it's self-imposed. And it's, so it's a little frustrating sometimes when men get in my com box and they're like, Mm. men have to deal with steroids. And I'm like, listen, man, if you want to make a page where you talk about this, I would endorse you. Please go do it. Like, go do it. Go talk about how bad steroid use is or how unrealistic steroid bodies are and then keep upholding images of normal, healthy men with all different forms of athletic ability and body types. Like, go do that. That's great. Um, But like, women aren't doing steroids to you. Mm. Whereas like, almost every major makeup company is owned by a man. Oh, wow. So like when people are like, maybe it's Maybelline, it's like, maybe it's a man. (laughs) Okay. Wow. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's just like, it's a false equivalent and yeah, it's a bad issue. And I feel like men should be talking about how it's damaging for them to look at like gym bro videos of men who are using steroids and be like, if I did this workout and I bought this protein powder, then I would look like this. Like, of course that's like, and there are people like that, but that that are talking about it. Yeah. Which is great. But that's not like something that's not a prison women have made for men. No, no, not at all. Whereas like the standard of shaving in the U S has come from like Gillette because they were trying to figure out during like Mm. the forties and fifties how to double and like increase their profits. And they were like, well, if we can make all of these insidious ads where we're like, no woman wants to be caught with hairy arms Mm. or like with like these female like cartoons or ads having like quote bubbles where they talk about like, even animated. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, my husband doesn't even know I grow hair there kind of a thing. And you're like, (laughs) Like they've created a demand for something that wasn't really part of Mm. like American standards for beauty and like brainwashed people into calling it unhygienic. Whereas Mm. like we don't look at a man fresh out of the shower and we're like, and go, he's just unhygienic. Mm. He's so hairy. That is Mm, unhygienic. mm, mm. At least most of us don't. Mm -hmm. And we do that to women Mm. and people don't see the cognitive dissonance of that where you're like, yeah, I, on one of the reels, uh, it was more so a conversation around like being less hairy is more feminine, per se. Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a double standard. Like there are so many women. Like women may have like less hair, or they may not have as coarse of hair, but acting as though embracing that superlative is a good thing. Like taking it to its extreme end is embracing our femininity Mm. is like an absurd response to something that was ultimately like a successful marketing campaign Mm. because body hair often on women increases, thickens or like just literally comes to the first time in an area at puberty. It's about becoming a woman Therefore, like, it's not unfeminine. Like, we don't say that about breasts, Mm. but we say that about auxiliary hair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When in fact, you know, this this hair serves purposes. Yeah, the definition of a woman, right? (laughs) It serves purposes. It has utility. Mm. And people don't know that. And, you know, sometimes I'll have people message me where they're like, I'm in med school and we're going over, like, puberty and the reproductive systems and everything. 
And they'll talk about how in their medical books, there just won't be mention of women also gaining this hair at puberty. And the diagrams will just show grown women as hairless. Oh. And so when you think about how deep this bias is going, where we're treating that as though it's not even a biological phenomenon Mm. because we've culturally erased it so much, that's damaging to women. Mm. So it's a little frustrating when people respond with, it's my preference, because it's like, well, this isn't just about you. And we should be able to engage in a conversation or dialogue about the wider social implications of what this is, including that, like, I've heard from people that at puberty, they thought that they were diseased because they literally did not anticipate growing hair. Oh, wow. And it's a tragedy, in my opinion, it's a a tragedy that little boys will grow up seeing all sorts of men in the world. They'll see men who bald. They'll see men who don't. They'll see men who go really gray versus like salt and pepper. They'll see pot bellies. They'll see fit dudes. Like they'll see the skinny old men. They'll see like, they'll see it all. And when they eventually become the man that they're going to be, they'll have data points to find themselves in. Yeah. Women do not have that. Mm. And so becoming a woman is more about grooming yourself than coming into your body. It's tough. So the idea that we're embracing or just heightening the difference between the sexes, to me, it seems like a cognitive dissonance. It doesn't seem like that's a true statement. That's tough. What what would your response be to people that utilize this as... I know you're going to laugh at this self-care or pampering because they, they, they do it as like, let me treat myself. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go get my nails done. I'm going to put some makeup on, feel Mm -hmm. good. You know, um, in the physical sense, it doesn't, you know, I don't think of mutilation when you apply makeup or, you know, get your nails painted and stuff like that. But, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to like removing body hair in, in certain areas can be seen as sometimes, and, and it is painful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so what, what would your response be to, I just enjoy pampering myself? My husband and I love getting pedicures together, but we don't get paint on our nails because mm. the part of it that we like of, sure, having like, everyone has to shorten their nails mm. um, or getting like an added foot massage or something like, sure, that's self-care that can be enjoyed no matter who you are. But the idea that like, you're caring for yourself by disguising yourself is not a claim I can necessarily agree with. And I think for a lot of women, it feels like self-care because we are so conditioned, complimented, whatnot, to believe that we are just enhanced when we... Well, that's when you receive these compliments, right? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of women, if you wear makeup most days, then if you don't wear it, Mm. people are like, are you sick? You look tired. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, if a man looks tired on average from day to day, it's because he was actually tired, not because it's just his face. You know? And so I think, I, I just feel like a lot of people don't maybe give themselves permission Mm. to like look at the rest of their lives and ask, do I really want to do this every day? 
do I really want to feel this way about my body? If like, and particularly if a woman's like younger, like if I'm supposedly in the golden years of my life here, like if mm. this is, if this is it, why don't I feel good? Why don't I feel like I'm enough? Yeah. And to me, from a psychological point of view, that feels like a bandaid on a bullet hole. Mm. Because all women are basically told you're not enough. And again, how long the checklist you're given is changes from woman to woman. But basically every woman is given a checklist of like, this is what you could change about yourself. Get going, kiddo. You're 13. (sighs) And it's very dysfunctional. Whereas I just wouldn't say like the struggles a lot of boys go through is necessarily because of what girls believe. Mm -hmm. And I do think men have like stuff to address. Mm. Um, Like I do think that that exists, but like, I don't think we could, I don't think we could argue that like the average adult man has as much of his bandwidth taken up with like what his face looks like at this given moment. Whereas like, like I recently gave myself like in the last couple of years permission to just not always be smiling. So I've had people Mm. write on my page, like, seeing this kind of B-roll video of you just doing something else, I was surprised at how you weren't smiling in the video. But then I realized, like, if you're actually folding the laundry for yourself or cooking or, like, like why would you just be manically smiling to yourself? <laughs> like, why would you? Um, <laughs> and I was kind of like, yeah. So I, like, gave myself permission to not be, like, constantly worried about my facial expressions. Mm. And... Some men, I think some men probably think about that, but I think on average, like the average man is not constantly like worried about his face. Whereas like if a woman is wearing lipstick, she is constantly thinking about what the lipstick looks like, if it needs to be touched up again, if she's wearing foundation and she like, and it rained or she sweat on her commute or like whatever, Mm. like she is thinking about all of those things. If she manipulated her hair to look a certain way and like that's going to need touch-ups and maintenance, that's like bandwidth from her piece and yeah. from being able to focus and just on average it's hard to be present yeah men don't have that no and I think about that even on like dates mm. like what I hear a lot of women talk about what they're thinking about and so women on first dates will do this thing where they like are almost trying to bribe men to like them more by doing a bunch of changes to their appearance and Men hopefully do certain things like brush their teeth or (laughs) take a shower or whatever. Um, And some men shave, but like shave their faces or trim their beards or something. But like on average, I just don't hear men talking about how they spend their dates thinking about what they look like, what their faces look like right now to the woman. Like if they do something, they like set it and forget it. Whereas for women, it's something where it comes at a very steep cost. Mm. Both, you know, in the literal financial sense and then Mm -hmm. in the mental sense too. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's a very expensive endeavor. That was another thing that started ticking me off. I started doing the research on like how much money women will spend on hair removal or on makeup throughout their life. And like the actual number bothered me, but the time bothered me more. The average American woman will spend over two years of her life in the bathroom primping. Mm. And that to me is a problem. I think to everyone that should be a problem. 
I think we can all agree that like spending two years of your life I changing what people, you look like. Most people don't recognize it as a problem. They might not. They might just be like, this is life. Right, right, right. Or they might be right. thinking like, this will improve other parts of my life because I'm so ugly that like yeah. I have well, to do maybe, this. Maybe they, they recognize it, but it's something they feel they have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people do, for sure. But I would argue that we have a say in our culture. Yeah. It's not just something that happens to us. Right. And even if that's just the culture of your own home, a phenomenal thing I couldn't have anticipated five years ago is how many messages I get from women saying, I swam with my kids for the first time and they're like eight or nine years old and how ashamed of their postpartum bodies they felt, how unworthy of being in a swimsuit or how self-conscious they felt inhibiting them from feeling like they could freely play. Mm. And women deserve full lives. Women don't deserve to think of themselves as diminishing goods or to think of their bodies in such sad or contemptful ways. Women shouldn't like, when you think about the human person, I would define it as a unique body and soul. And not everyone believes in a soul, but like they can at least agree that we shouldn't be at war with our one body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want people to feel at peace and it's very hard to feel at peace if you keep changing it in unsustainable ways that aren't serving you. Yeah. And are instead like serving self-consciousness you were taught or serving like a massive industry that profits off of it. I think the biggest hurdle people uh, for most people is um, getting over that hurdle of feeling like you have to do this. Mm-hmm. So I wonder like who do they have to, I wonder if it's like having, if they're with someone, like having the partner that is willing to listen and mm-hmm. have these you know, vulnerable conversations with them. Like, would you still, you know, love me? And, you know, it, that, and what if they said no, you know, it's like, it's, it's super vulnerable. It's scary. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, um, starting over, you know, all that stuff. It's just like, um, at at what cost, I guess, like, where do you draw the line? Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think drawing a line, right? Like, no, I don't think many of us spend enough time cultivating integrity, uh, from our values. Um, and so like one, one word that I get from your essence is like unshakable. (laughs) (laughs) I am pretty, I am pretty resolute (laughs) to, to have with clarity, like who you are, what you're about and you're not swayed. I am swayed by truth. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not saying that you're not open-minded, right? You're still, you have the capacity to listen and learn. Um, but you also have the ability to stand your ground. Which I think is very jarring to people. I think many people interpret that as like a threatening position to be in Mm. because we are so accustomed to relativism or you do you 
but mm. I truly want the best for people. And I don't think the best for anybody is sitting in a bathroom hating what you look like and painting a face over your face. I don't think spending years rejecting normal, healthy parts of what you look like mm -hmm. is self-love or self-care. And because I feel this way, and I sometimes I feel like I want more for people than they want for themselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So how, how frustrating is it? I, Over the last five years, I'm sure you've come to, to terms with like what, yeah. how many people you've impacted, but you know, how many more you wish you could have? I think in terms of like boundaries, like that's just out of my control. Okay. And yeah. in some ways it's like not my business. My business yeah. is to say the truth and let it go free. My business is not to like force people to change their minds. Yeah. And like, you're not, you're not going up to people on the street. Like you got to do this. You got to do that. No. And almost all of my friends and so much of my family, like still adhere to mm. body hair removal or makeup or whatever. And like, I would have no peace in my own life if it was something where I was like constantly sure. trying to do missionary work with everyone. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I think that almost all people are best moved just by seeing joyful examples. Mm. So I just live my life. And, you know, sometimes people ask me like pretty directly, like, oh, like, why do you have leg hair? Mm. Or like, I've never seen you wear makeup. Why? or whatever. And like, if they ask, I'll answer. Yeah. But I just let myself exist. And for a lot of people, like it's not anything to comment on. And for some people it is something to comment on. And I'm, you know, ready for it at this point. <laughs> I've heard every line in the book. <laughs> what, uh, what was, uh, wedding day like? I remember it, it only happened once to me, uh, when, a, and you've, uh, you hear all the time, I'm sure of like when a bride felt guilty for crying uh, at the first look and, um, uh, the photographer was at the ready with like just blotting paper and just like mm -hmm. soaking up the tear and stuff. They feel guilty because they just got the makeup on. They spent that, hours getting the makeup on. Or that um, the photos they, they felt, don't look No, the they, they, they felt guilty for ruining the makeup. Gotcha. Yeah. Like, you know, you, and you hear it, like, I can't cry. You, you're, you're taught things to like, look up and blink and, and just like stop yourself from crying. That's sad. I think about my wedding morning and I think about just how collaborative and joyful mm -hmm. and chill it felt and how all day I had total freedom to eat or drink what I wanted, to hug people, to... Even a hug, a hug. Yeah. You, you gotta, you gotta do one of those awkward like side hugs. <laughs> I've, I've seen like reels where a bride hugs her groom, and it's just like a yeah, face. The face I am. <laughs> the suit or the tux, and you're just like, oh, okay. And he's often kind of like, oh. <laughs> and I like I've had men actually tell me that like they have certain women in their families that every time they see them at a formal event, they come up and like smother them. And they're like, it's actually frustrating. Like they felt it was frustrating to me because like, you know, 
I had this like pressed and cleaned and now at the very beginning of an event I have like a ton of foundation all over it um yeah I mean I I felt like it was so important to me to not wear a mask it was so important to me to not have like a princess fantasy narrative Mm. and it was important to me that when we made vows that we did so fully as ourselves, fully accepting ourselves and the other. And for the sake of posterity, I was also concerned about my children recognizing me and themselves in our wedding photos. Because I had a lot of experiences as like a tween and teen babysitting in families where it looked like the fathers had married other women when in reality, oh, like that, that drastic, huh? <laughs> and some of it's because like women did things that were so trendy and the trend has changed, you know, when they're like oh, years into the marriage. And sure, so, like, sure, sure. Or sometimes it's that they did something that was super unsustainable. And when life hits you with kids, like you just don't oh. have the bandwidth to keep up with like the opposite hair color and the opposite eyebrows and yeah. the full face of makeup or whatever. But I didn't want that for us. I wanted when I was old for there to be still like the basic structure of my face to be seen as it was and not with like contour. Um, It mattered to me that I was being accepted as I am for better, for worse. I think most people say that, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's tougher for others to embody it. Yes. I I don't think that the road ahead for anybody who wishes to deprogram is like nobody has quite the same journey. Mm. And people will have more or less uh attack vectors by critics and naysayers, you know, who are usually in the cheap seats who are mm-hmm. criticizing stuff they're not even doing. Mm-hmm. Um So it, it's not going to look the same for everybody who does it. And for some people it like it's going to require a lot of like boundary work with families. It might require a lot of boundary work with a partner or a spouse where, you know, the spouse might feel like, well, you know, I loved you because you were this kind of person and now you look totally different and I don't find that stuff attractive. And it's like, okay, well, why don't you find it attractive? And, you know, I, I hope people chose open-minded enough people yeah, to question. I'm going to get real honest real quick. Yeah. To question like, well, why don't you find the natural female body beautiful. Like, how does that, how does that work? And cause I know that most women have some foresight that like a lot of men will go bald or like a lot of men will carry fat in their like bellies. Mm. Like a lot of women know that. And there aren't that many, like I've heard very, very few instances of women being like, he went bald, so I divorced him. Oh. Like, I've never heard stuff like that, except for, like, one or two extreme instances. Okay. But I have seen many stories where, like, women's bodies changed postpartum, and he cheated. Which was a, oh, okay. Or, like, he didn't like, you know, all of the changes that came with aging or a serious illness. Like, t- statistically, when a woman gets cancer, high likelihood of divorce. Mm. Men don't 
necessarily have the foresight to practice what it's going to be like to have someone who looks diseased because they are diseased. (laughs) People don't practice imagining in their heads what in sickness and in health means or for better or for worse, richer or poorer. People don't think about that enough and do the thought exercise of, you know, do I still want to be married to this one and only person if they do get really ugly or if some like freak accident happens. Like I, I've seen instances of people being mauled by dogs and having their entire face permanently changed mm, yeah. or like fires and burns, like completely changing their skin tone. And if you can't do that thought exercise and say like, that would be really hard. Like it would be hard to watch you suffer. It'd be hard. It's hard to imagine you not looking like you but like ultimately who you are is who I still want to share a bed with forever. Mm. Like if you can't answer that, then I wouldn't, I would pause future planning and really think about what's holding you up. Were these literal, literal conversations you had with your husband when you were dating? Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. And especially because I had, I had been on bed rest and I was like, what if I was in a wheelchair? And yeah. people have this weird thing actually where you're in a wheelchair, you'd think people would stare, but actually people act like you're not even there. People will not make eye contact with you when you're in a wheelchair. People get locked up in what to do. Yeah. I think they think staring would be rude. So mm-hmm. they try not to be rude, but in their benevolent attempt to not be rude, mm. they rude. actually <laughs> treat you like you're invisible and not even there. Okay. And so I imagine that for my very abled bodied husband like that would be a very difficult challenge for him whereas I've already been in that situation and if he was in a wheelchair I don't think it would unnerve me as much because I've already had practice yeah we we take our body for granted and most people haven't had that experience where it was something was like that was taken away your ability Mm -hmm. to feel and your feet and walk so it's not usually at a forethought it's not it's not usually at at the height of, you know, a priority in, in initial conversations when they're dating. Uh, a family friend who's a priest, he remarked to my husband, well, a year with her is like five years with anyone else because I force certain conversations. <laughs> like I don't want to waste my time. Yeah. And life is short. So if you meet the right one, you want your life to get going. Yeah. And if someone's not the right one, you want to free yourself up, <laughs> in my opinion. But I think I have uh, more pleasure in my own company than perhaps some people. <laughs> so, but I think people do need to be more like, I think a lot of people are afraid of scaring people off. Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 scare them off. Scare them <laughs> off. Listen, uh, you know, my dad used to always quote, a faint heart never won a fair lady. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to be easily scared off by having serious conversations, then like, why do you want, you need to be married to someone you can have serious conversations with. Like that's going to be life. Yeah. You're going to have serious conversations. Do your sickly parents move in with you or not? How do you want to be buried? What is important to you? How many kids do you want? Like you have to have difficult, serious conversations and you have like, if there's anyone in the world you have to be able to have hard conversations with, it's the person you marry. Yeah. So you need to weed them out. If someone is not emotionally available, if someone's not on the same page as you, like free up your time. 
your time's all you got. It's prioritizing that over the superficial external validation. It's fleeting. Which, when you get a taste of like true companionship, mm. like you really don't want to settle for less. I mentioned the words like kind of safety and security earlier. Are there other, other terms that come to mind um, when you think of marriage? Reliability, dependability. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Marriage is all of it. I, I would say that reliability is probably a foundation people don't necessarily think of as being the foundation. I think sometimes people think like attraction or like just shared values mm. is the foundation, but I think the security in someone's reliability is what makes it possible for the rest of your life to thrive. Because if you're worried that someone's halfway out the door, it's very difficult to achieve the most that you can within your marriage. It's hard. You both have to be on a similar page with that as easy as divorce is. And some people would say it's hard as hell. <laughs> I think sometimes people treat divorce like it's, or or infidelity. Yeah, I would right. say that for some people, infidelity it would be a lot easier than divorce. Yeah, but yeah, I marriage is like an interesting relationship because of how much your body plays a part in it, right? Like, I can have friends where I don't have to think that they are like attractive to me in order, like physically attractive. I don't have to think that they're like hottie patties yeah, <laughs> in order yeah. to want to be friends with them. Right. Um, but I forget the exact etymology, but like marriage is about the sharing of your bodies mm. in that kind of a way. And that creating, you know, your unity and family life is really important And so I would argue that your own peace with your body, as well as having a standard that the other person has some level of peace with your body too, um, that that is foundational to me in having a happy marriage. Mm. So I really feel for women who reach out to me and they're like, what should I do? Like, I agree with your points, but my husband hates leg hair or whatever. Yeah. you know, it's, it's not an easy situation to be in, but ultimately it's something that needs to be worked on because your marriage is sharing your body. Mm. And my friend doesn't have to like my leg hair to be my friend. Right. Right. But, you know, I had a woman once talk about how she felt after the fact that her husband had manufactured a holiday with friends and a dinner night in order to try to get her to shave for the first time in four months. Oh, like so, an intervention. Almost. Yeah. And she said to me that like on that trip earlier that day, they had been intimate. And then when they were getting ready to go out to dinner with friends and they were in like a hot climate. So she was wearing clothes that showed her body hair. Oh wow! He was like, you're not going to even shave now. Oh, and wow. she challenged and like shared vulnerably with me, like, so I was 
good enough to have sex with, but not to be seen in public with. And you should never feel like that in your marriage. You shouldn't feel like that generally, but like I would argue that the baseline of your marital relationship should be that you want to be seen in public with someone. And I had a friend remark that I, she felt I had a particular talent at training people to treat me the way I wanted to be treated. Hmm. And I was a little shocked that she said that, but I look at situations like that and I realize like my parents did really help me train people to treat me the way I want to be treated and to have those standards for myself and to feel emboldened and encouraged to be like, that's not going to work for me. Yeah. And you just ward off the people that, you know, would treat you differently anyway. But it's very hard to have that realization after you've already legally bound yourself to someone and for people to feel like you are changing what I thought I was agreeing to. Part of the journey. Yeah. But I do think that people should have been thinking about situations like, what if I was in a wheelchair? What if I got really injured? What if I was in a house fire and like blah, blah, blah. And while many of those things won't happen, something will happen just like aging. Yeah. And yeah. expecting people to look the way that they did when it's you just, got married. When, when you're in your mid twenties, you don't, you're not thinking about your deathbed. Yeah. Most people aren't. No. It's a privilege <laughs> and a curse. <laughs> I think it's good to think about your deathbed somewhat. Yeah. But yeah, I, we only get to pick one family member. You know, we don't get to pick our siblings or our parents or our children, our aunts, uncles, I've never heard it like that. That makes... We get to pick our spouse. I've never heard of it like that. And people sometimes act like they don't. And I want to empower people. Start acting like you can. You get to pick that one family member. And with that family member, your bodies are going to be important parts. Like, very important parts of that marriage. Yeah. I don't have to, like, like what my parents look like. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't have to like how they style themselves. I don't have to necessarily think, you know, this haircut's the one I would have chosen or whatever. Like, I don't have to think any of that, but they're my parents. And so, like, that isn't the crux of it. But if someone decides, I just don't like this part of the human body, like, I would argue you are not in an emotionally healthy space to even get married. It's like a ludicrous thing. I I just don't think many men could imagine women being like, I don't like Adam's apples. So if you're not willing to surgically get that out, uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to look at you for the rest of my life. (laughs) Like it's just ludicrous. Whereas a lot of women are put in situations where they get pressured into breast augmentation Mm. or where men will be like, well, I don't like all the stretch marks that you got creating our children. And men think that they get to cafeteria pick what of the human body they like or don't like. Including, very weirdly, a very unscientific rejection of cellulite. Mm. Like, I don't know how much you know or don't know, but like women have literally a different cellular structure for their fat cells. No, I didn't know that. And it's amazing. If you look at like a cross section, like a scientific illustration of what it looks like, men have different fat cells than women do. And women's fat cells lead to the like 
bumpy appearance of cellulite. Oh, okay, okay. And it's a very important part of like the existence and uh, well-being of the human species because that cellulite makes women more resilient in times of like famine, illness, and with childbearing. And yet men online will comment things like, especially like thirsty men, if a, like if a kind of thirst trap page shows like any hint of cellulite or like looking real, they'll be like, she needs to work out more. Mm. And it's by design part of what keeps the human species going. Like it's not an accident. It's not a sign of laziness. Most women have visible cellulite. And it is a secondary sex characteristic similar to breasts, mm. but men will reject it ignorantly claiming that it's just about being fat and lazy. Mm-hmm. And that has like a whole can of worms of, mm-hmm. you know, other parts of body image problems. But women, <laughs> women might not like love balding or something or like not every woman is as understanding about how men are, store fat around their bellies more than like, say their legs the way a lot of women do. Um, but I, I don't feel that the standards are held up in the same way. And men are really doing themselves a disservice by being so boyish and limiting in their viewpoint of like what the real female body looks like, what's beautiful, what's healthy, what's normal. Mm. And it's a shame that they don't have any clue as to what normal is. But it's also a shame for us living in our bodies, feeling abnormal when in fact we are on a very normal scattergraph of what human traits may or may not look like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't want women to feel alienated from what they look like. And the only way for that to happen is for women to brave the course and start showing those real parts of what they look like Mm. and to not you know, lean towards Photoshopping to not lean towards filters to not like try to not to choose clothing out of shame because it's going to hide these parts of themselves that they've been taught not to like, Mm. like I want women to feel free to choose what they want to wear. Yeah. And you know, for example, a lot of women who like people will be like, Oh, who else does the same work as you do? And it's hard because a lot of women online who are, for example, advocating for body hair, they wear like a ton of makeup. And a lot of women feel Mm. like if I'm going to go against the grain in this one way, I'm going to apologize it by like adhering. Is that, that's probably subconscious though. I think it's, I do think it's subconscious, but I also have heard women say like, like they're still compensating in a different way. Yes. And I've heard also like a strategizing that it may look accidental or like laziness if I were to go fully natural. Whereas if I have very visible, like upper lip hair or chest hair and I'm wearing makeup, I'm showing that I'm spending time on my appearance and I know it's there. Like I know what I look like. I could see them like lip hair, Mm -hmm. mustache Mm -hmm. and I put lipstick on anyway and I'm drawing attention. And so I'm wearing the makeup, but I'm also like drawing attention to my lip hair. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's an apology and sometimes it's meant to be a subversive juxtaposition showing I am intentionally doing this. Like I have a friend who went gray and she dyed just the tips of her hair like purple. And it was basically saying like, I didn't give up. I'm not lazy. I know exactly what it looks like that I have gray hair. I know that that ages me. People act like aging is the worst thing. 
but I am deliberate enough about my gray to dye the tips purple. So interesting. So there is like some nuance, obviously, in like trying to reclaim those things and trying to do things where you're showing the intentionality of leaving be characteristics that are on the whole rejected by the industry. Yeah. At the end of the day, you want to help someone do something because they want to do them. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I'm not like- consciously want to do them because some people will claim that they want to do these things. I'm not an overlord or something like even if I could wave a magic wand and against everyone's will do it like I wouldn't because I believe in free will so strongly. Yeah. So people should do things because they want to. But most of us aren't doing this kind of stuff in the first place because we want to. We're doing it because we were shamed into doing it. We suppressed the memories of how much shame we felt. And now we act like it feels good because it's really diminishing the shame. Hmm. Brene Brown argues that the like one of the most deeply seated vulnerabilities and areas of shame for women is in their body image, mm. which makes this a difficult conversation for most people. And it's a delicate one. But at the end of the day, I think that it's unjust what's happening to women. And honestly, while like when I started, 99% of American women shaped their underarm hair. Mm. And now I think that number has gone down to like high 70s, low 80s. Mm. And I'm thrilled that one out of five women is now choosing to leave her auxiliary hair intact. Um, so like that has been changing and that's great. But there are still a lot of women who don't actually feel the freedom to leave it be or who don't, who still feel shame about it or who don't have like necessarily the tools or the right line of questions Mm. to get to the root of their why. Who am I doing this for and why am I doing it? Are there any other questions besides those two? I got a lot of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So many questions to inspire self-reflection as to, Yeah to the root cause of like, what, why are we doing some of these things? Yeah. I'm actually, I'm very close to finishing and publishing a journal with a co-writer. Nice. Um, which I didn't actually know that we'd get to talk about. So this is cool. Uh, and it's just filled with like intake questions and then prompts to help people reflect on where certain beliefs came from, how deeply held are they? Um, and to allow themselves like a judgment-free space on their page to interrogate these questions that are very shame-based for most people. Mm. So I challenged myself and asked a lot of difficult questions over many, many years. And Mm. I'm hoping that this will help people not have to spend that much time doing it all on their own. Yeah. Um, Is this going to be like a daily thing, like a, like a a page per day or just kind of here and there? I don't think it would be possible for most women to truly digest each thing in a day. Ooh, okay. So people can go at their own pace for sure. Um, People might just blow through it, but I suspect that for a lot of people and some of it will depend on like their particular subcultures or like their family cultures. I imagine for most people it's going to involve a bit of grief work in unpacking their childhood. Have you like consulted with some of your friends about maybe different cultures about like Mm -hmm. other questions that 
other people might be thinking about? Or other yeah. frame, frameworks? And some of the questions are framed to allow people to like use whichever bit applies to them. So for example, like I, as a very fair, like pale person, yeah. uh, was deeply encouraged to tan when I was younger. Whereas yeah. like some of my friends, especially like Southeast Asian descent were encouraged to bleach. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's the catch 22. Like no one is perfect enough. And mm. so like everybody is taught to change things as fundamental as our skin tones. Mm-hmm for the sake of a beauty trend. And so like questions will be phrased in ways where you can find what part of that oh, cool. appeals to your background. Yeah. But I've, yeah, I've been so blessed with so much exposure to people's different upbringings and backgrounds and how, yeah, different biases that perhaps go into like race or age or sex sure. leads to different expectations and standards for people. Um, you know, like I've had people point out my upper lip hair and it's like particularly visible on like sunny days. So like if the light catches me in a, in a way, like sure. people are like, oh, you actually have a lot of hair there <laughs> and it's blonde. So like most people don't see it. But like I have friends that have been waxing their lips oh. since they were like eight or nine years old. So like that's a very different burden to carry through life. Yeah. And when I tell people like, yeah, I know I got hair there. Like, and like, that's a different place for me to be coming from versus like, if one of these like friends, for example, were to suddenly stop, like they're going to have a lot more to like unpack Mm. about what it means to like have visible lip hair. And even like internally, how they may be harder on themselves than other people. Cause sometimes like sometimes other people are much harder mm. on these things than we are ourselves. And sometimes we're much harder on ourselves about these things than other people. And I think it's probably easiest for anybody to deal with the things that are hardest, like we're harder on than other people. Because if people in public aren't reinforcing mm-hmm. that something's abnormal or weird about it, then we can just work through like, yeah. I went outside without straightening my hair and nobody said anything. Right, right. But if it's something that people would comment on, it's harder to not care or to have the resilience with that because like we are social creatures. Yeah. And I would never claim like you just shouldn't care at all what people think. Like that's to go against our human nature. But we should care a lot less <laughs> what people think. Yeah, right. Were there moments like on your journey where you wavered at all? Yeah. Hmm. I remember I had gotten to a point where I hadn't shaved my legs in like two years. And then I was going to a party with someone I'd recently started dating. And it basically said to wear like a cocktail dress. And Mm. so I was like, okay, well. And I almost felt like I didn't want it to reflect on him. In a particular way. And it was funny because he didn't care. Oh, interesting. But I felt like... I Uh, felt like this group of people I didn't even know that were like through his connections were going to judge him Although he didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And there are a lot of things in life like that where (laughs) the judgment, like the hammer, is just going to come down harder on the woman even if like Mm -hmm. the man is fine with it or even if it was some 
there's a lot of times where that kind of stuff happens, but I did shave. And then I remembered like looking around and thinking that pretty much no one looked at my legs, like just absolutely nobody. And then I felt this overwhelming disappointment in myself that I had like betrayed myself for a group of strangers who in the end were not looking at my shins and calves. Like that was not the important part. And I then felt like so self-absorbed that I thought like they Mm. would care. Mm -mm. You know, it's not like I could understand why Julia Roberts, like she famously in the nineties didn't shave her armpits for a premiere and then so many photos were taken of her and it went like viral as far as viral things in 98, 99 go. And it was funny cause she remarked, I just forgot to shave. Like it wasn't a political statement. It wasn't her being like, I'm a feminist. Like she just like literally forgot to, and then put on a sleeveless dress and like waved at cameras, like when oh. getting in and out of a limo and people could see her armpit hair and like people went crazy. Like it was on front pages. Like it, which, yeah. you know, who wow. does that for like paparazzi pics of men at the beach or something like nobody. And it literally wasn't a political statement and it just like shook people. I am not Julia Roberts. All right. <laughs> Me going to a party is not Julia Roberts, but women are taught to think about themselves with this constant self-objectification, this constant voyeurism of like what other people are thinking when they look at them. Mm. And women would be so much happier if they just were like silence. (laughs) Like none of that matters. That is bull crap. I am not going to let strangers steal my joy, steal my peace, steal like myself from feeling at home in my home. And I'm going to live how I want to live. And I remembered like that relapse almost. I I just felt so much disappointment in myself. Mm Like it did absolutely nothing except set me back and make it itchy for me to grow it back out. Set you back. And we're, so then ha- after that realization, were you more steadfast? Like going I've never forward? shaved my legs since. And, and, but, and that probably has transferred to other areas of deprogramming. That resolve, you know, that, that yeah. epiphany. Yeah. I, like whether someone is religious or not, like I, I look at this and I'm like, God gave me this face. So if this face wasn't trendy when I was growing up, like it wasn't a mistake. Like it wasn't a mistake for me to be given these features and then to have like freckles dumped on or whatever. Like, like people made fun of my cheeks nonstop. I had like really like chipmunky kind of cheeks when Mm. I was little. And now I look back on those pictures and I like, just look at that little child and I'm like sad that she was, made to not feel at ease in something that she could not have changed yeah. nor should she have. And I think to myself, like there are, there are reasons why some of us are given this nose or those lips or whatever. And like, I need to live my life. Well, that is like why I'm on earth is to live my life. Well, and in service of others. And when women feel like their greatest service to others is to change their face, that is a poverty, if not a total robbery Mm. of our humanity and of our culture. Mm. Women contribute so much more than what they look like. And yet it is the entrance fee 
into almost yeah. all areas of life for women. I, I see that as a common response to a lot of your posts. I'm just like needing it, feeling with the need yeah. to, to climb the ranks. Or that it just gives them confidence. And I'm like, well, why don't men feel like I've never heard a man be like, I just didn't feel confident without my red lipstick at my job interview today. I've mm-hmm. never heard a man say that. There's nothing like that's inherently confidence boosting about it. It's a total socialization. And if we acknowledge that, then we can try to game our brains back. Mm-hmm. And for men, like there are ugly men who go on to do great things. Mm-hmm. They go on to have lovely marriages. They go on to become president of the United States and anything in between. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. There are stupid people that have great lives. There are geniuses who have terrible lives. Like there are people all over every sort of like quality human beings have who have any quality of life ever. And yet for women, their appearance really is like the price that they pay before getting to do anything else. Mm-hmm. So if a woman wants to be a successful lawyer and she is like on the bell curve considered ugly in her time and place, then she understands that there's going to be like a bias against her in what has historically been a male dominated field. And so that woman statistically is going to overcompensate by changing her appearance and wearing super high heels and wearing skirts instead of pants, like suit pants in the courtroom or whatever. She's going to do things to try to make herself appeal to the mainstream standard of feminine beauty because that is seen as professional to be beautiful. Whereas I have known so many just average or even dumpy lawyers as men who like go in and kill it Mm. and it's fine. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll challenge people (laughs) to things like this. Um, And I don't have a direct answer about some of these things. But like a lot of women, for example, in dating are encouraged to ignore the fact that they don't have physical attraction to a man and to instead focus on how he's hardworking and honest and he'll treat her right. And people act like it doesn't matter that she's physically attracted to him. Have you ever heard anyone ask that of a man? Just ignore that you're not attracted to her. She's got a great personality. Just get over the fact that you're just not loving looking at that. I've never heard that. Yeah. And people will say things like, men are more visual. And I'm like, why do bachelor pads look like dumps usually then? Like, if if men are so visual, why are women like the homemakers and the primary beauty makers in most areas of life? Mm. And, you know, it's a, people don't want to interrogate that. It's unfortunate. It's, it's just really limits people from feeling their humanity to the fullest. And I think that like women who are on the uglier end of the bell curve should have every right to just exist, to just be, to go and pursue whatever it is that they want to pursue and to go after it and to not feel like I have to first be the most attractive version of myself before I'm going to be taken seriously or treated like a human being or not seen as invisible. Yeah. And I guess the next question for that, for that demographic is like, what do they need to think, say to themselves or do to feel 
confident in their own body. I think different things speak to different people, so I don't know that mm, I could have yeah. a singular thing. There's so many different factors. However, ugly men go on to have great lives all the time. <laughs> like, literally all the time. I know so many ugly men who have like the audacity. <laughs> Like in a good way. I like the how you don't you don't you don't shy away. Well, and not that you would say this to someone's face, but just simply stating like ugly men live fantastic lives. Um, because it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> yeah. Because that's not where I'm assigning the value of the human person. So if we just acknowledge that, like some people might structurally have like <laughs> faces that you know maybe don't seem as balanced or symmetric. Like you know if we or even in situations with like tremendous injury, like again, if we talk about someone who has like severe burns from like fire or acid or something, like they deserve to have fantastic lives. Yeah. Like, and I truly believe that they deserve that. Yeah. They deserve to have the ambition and self love to believe that their life is more than what they look like. Yeah. And the average man I know has a good form of that audacity. Mm hmm. Whereas the average woman I know will spend well, We have the luxury of, to not think about it, I guess, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Or like how many guys get like told like, like you looked out, man, she's great looking, blah, blah, blah. And like, I don't know how an average Joe like you pulled her or whatever. And like men are like, yeah, I'm lucky, love her. But if you were to tell a woman that, like I know a few women who have basically been told like, how did you get this guy? He's so much more attractive than you. But it's like very damaging to most of them to hear that. Oh, wow. Where <laughs> exactly? Like yeah, how, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, you you do usually only just hear it towards the guys uh, being told to guys. Um, I've never heard it been told to, to girls telling it to each other of of like wow. I, I know a few women who've oh, basically wow. been told that like how did you? get I wonder him? if they even realize that. <laughs> yeah, without any malicious intent, but like just as you're saying it, you're like, wait, that doesn't sound right. Or it doesn't yeah. sound nice. You know, if I, even <laughs> like using the phrase, like, no, she's an ugly woman. Like people would be like, <sighs> right. Like that would be like a jarring, awful thing to say. And, but when you say things like, how did ugly. you get him? <laughs> yeah. Or like implies that you're not worthy, you know, worthy or almost like, there was some ulterior motive for why he'd be with you. Are you oh, secretly oh. an heiress? Like, you know, <laughs> like, oh, okay. Um, yikes. And like, that's just bizarre. But a lot of guys are kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of ugly, but you know, <laughs> she's great. I really looked out and like, they're fine. Like, they're totally fine with that. Like that yeah. has not diminished their sense of like, no. I also deserve love. Like, <laughs> I also deserve partnership. But like with women, the implication is almost like, how did you trick him? And like, she then is like, damn. It, it. And I think about the inverse of this. The number of times I hear people, the first adjective that they'll use to describe their female partner or their wife or whatever this is my beautiful wife mm -hmm. or someone introducing a group mm -hmm. like this is Mark and his beautiful wife, Emma or like whatever. And like Emma could be like a dual MBA and law degree genius mm. or whatever. She could be like a total savant with several instruments. She could speak nine languages or whatever. The first <laughs> thing that's going to get said is that she's beautiful. 
she is a beautiful wife, beautiful girlfriend, whatever. Yeah. As opposed to like, this is Mark and this is his like wickedly smart wife, Emma. Sure. Yeah. This is his super funny wife, Emma. Like people aren't picking other great adjectives. It's almost always like the default and it's like physical looks. Yes. Mm. Like the first affirmation that's seen as like a baseline in a partner is that she is attractive. Yeah, to me, it's, yeah, I, I agree. That's just the way we, I think society's programmed. Um, and it's like part of small talk. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And it might take a, a minute or two to get into a conversation where you start introducing other parts of this human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that woman or, you know, or when someone pays you a compliment, you know, what, what if it's genuinely a compliment? Oh, I'm not saying it can't be genuine compliment. I'm just saying that it's the default and that should say something about the bias in our culture of what a woman is first and foremost. Yeah. And like women are beautiful. Like, you know, there's a reason why they're the subject of art so often. Like they're lovely. Um, I don't think like the average woman is ugly, but the Mm. average woman is made to feel ugly. Mm. And that gap is what I'm trying to close. I got you. I got you. (laughs) I got you. Um, we'll wrap up in a minute. I just wanted to, to bring up like one of my last guests. He hasn't been, the episode hasn't come out yet, but he, um, he hasn't done it in a really long time, but he used to tattoo patients that have had mastectomies mm-hmm. or burn scars. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean f- for him and for his clients, um, I, th- it, it seems like it was very, therapeutic um i guess there's many ways someone can come to find peace with where they're at in their journey i guess Mm -hmm. um i don't know we didn't talk about tattoos at all but like that's one form of body modification Mm -hmm. in a way any any thoughts on that or well, not all tattoos are equal, right? Like people are getting their eyebrows or like lipstick right, or right. like freckles tattooed. And I think that the imitation of something that's natural but not natural to you mm. is more of a gray area I have a problem with. Whereas yeah. like I've never looked at like Samoan tattoos. Oh, sure. And been like, you're rejecting what you look like. It's actually... It's part of their culture. It's, yeah, it's like a cultural signifier that's about belonging to... yeah their body and collectively belonging to their like ethnicity and race as opposed to. And, so, and some are simply aesthetic reasons, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, or you look in the mirror and you see flowers instead of a scar. Mm-hmm. I try to encourage people to think about how there are a lot of um, procedures that have utilitarian value as well. Mm. So, for example, like not every eye lift is just about like trying to look like a model with like doe eyes or something. Like some people legitimately can't see or getting ingrown hairs because yeah. their eyelids are drooping so badly. Yeah. And some things do serve like utilitarian healing purposes that help people live fuller lives. Um, and I don't think every form of like body modification is a problem, but I think things that alienate us from ourselves or alienate mm. other people, even from themselves by the example is where we need to feel a collective call to action that we're not only ourselves, we are part of the human race. Mm. And I like, I've never really, 
I know what you're talking about with those kind of almost restorative. I know it it would, you know, they can probably get to that, arrive to that feeling that they feel after the tattoo in other ways might be longer. Um, But yeah, it was interesting to hear that from him. Yeah. I would, because I've had so many health concerns, I would be more concerned about like ink draining into your lymphatic system Mm. or having that complicate like imaging and emergency situations in the future. Because I do ask you a lot about like tattoos and piercings in order to get certain sort of imaging done in the hospital. So I would, I personally would be more cautious of doing stuff like that because there are some kind of downstream effects of it. But people do weigh like it's still worth it to me. And people can make balanced decisions. I think as long as people are like informed of those kinds of decisions to make, that's your call then. Um, But I don't, I don't feel like it would alienate other people from their humanity. If someone who had a double mastectomy had like some massive art piece put across their chest, especially if they didn't have, like their breasts restructured. No. Like some it, do, some don't. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't, that to me wouldn't be like a rejection of femininity. It wouldn't be a rejection of humanity. It would be. It's almost just for themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's when oftentimes actually, <laughs> oftentimes people will be like, I do makeup because it is artistic and it gives me this artistic outlet. And it's funny just because like in the world of art, you would not call something art if it was literally what everyone else was doing. Like it would have to involve some amount of originality. Mm. And so it's not like, like if all you did was constantly trace the Mona Lisa, that's not the same thing as getting into like acrylics yourself and having original subjects. So just like putting on mascara is not art. Um, and if you have that artistic inclination, I, I encourage people to find lasting art, something that can be shared and handed down. And I, I do think that there's like some very temporal forms of art that are still legitimate, but shame-based painting a face over your face so that you don't get fired isn't really an art piece in my mm-hmm. mind, but people act like it's artistic. Whereas I would think of the integration of scars in like something that was damaged in your body to make it look very intentional and beautiful or to have the eye drawn towards the unique artistry of a tattoo artist using whatever's happened to the skin or the area as actually being more of an art, you know, than Mm. what a lot of people claim everyday makeup is. Yeah. I mean, we all tell ourselves certain things that make sense of why we do what we do. Yeah. And I think people have good reasons for behaving the way that they do. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I do think that there are some malicious actors like in the, beauty industry who know that they're manipulating people and it's making Mm. them money. But the average person is, she's just like trying her best. Yeah. And I feel for that obviously. And like even my version of trying my best was like a slow and rocky road. So like some people like overnight change and I'm like hats off to you. Love that getting knocked off your horse moment. Like love that for you. That wasn't me. I like, had so many arguments with myself 
like over the course of years. Mm. Um, so I love when people with conviction and integrity can change on a dime. But most people have good reasons for struggling and have been so socialized um, and if not brainwashed into like thinking that the female body isn't feminine. And it's like- It's inherently feminine. (laughs) (laughs) What is then? (laughs) Or that it's like unhygienic when it's hygienic on, Mm. you know, her brother. And I think- we can all be more deliberate. And even if it's just something like a woman's like, you know what? I have acne and I'm not going to spend my life covering it up, potentially making it worse and everything. Like I have acne and I'm not going to spend every morning apologizing for having acne by covering it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to do that. If she does that and like reclaims that, but she's still shaving, like that's still a win. Mm. That's still like taking up space as you are. That's still reclaiming your peace and your bandwidth in some way. A win is a win. So do I think that like every woman on the face of the planet is going to like go natural or something overnight? Like, no, but wouldn't it look better if more women did? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be helpful for little girls to feel natural and normal when they go through puberty rather than wondering if they have cancer or something and that's what's causing this or that on their body because they never see it on adult women? I have felt like, my example and my body really aren't just about me. For me, it is a calling. It's a vocation to do this work and to use the odd workings of my brain as well as some of the like privileges of my body to advocate because women deserve to feel fully human and to be fully alive in their bodies and to feel at home the way all people do. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't touched on? I could talk about it forever. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think women should in particular think about how often they gently look at other women how often they may look at a grandmother and just love what she looks like all wrinkled and old or to look at their children and be like, Oh, I do actually really love this nose. And to give themselves that grace to be themselves, to be loved. Ultimately every human heart craves acceptance and belonging and we can train other people to accept us and to treat us like we belong Mm -hmm. through our example and to think about how they can incorporate that better into their lives. Cause I do think for a lot of women deprogramming from the beauty industry would be an amazing step towards having that peace and integrity in their whole lives. Mm. I, I can't, I mean, I don't know why. Yeah. People are fighting you on this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) we're all on a, you know, everyone's on their own journey. Um, it's important work. I, I, I uh, grateful, grateful for your wisdom. I'm grateful for you. Grateful for the work that you're doing. Um, it's so cool. Um, and how can you de- deny anyone from wanting to just live a full human experience? You know, some people, <laughs> some people would argue it is part of the human experience. <laughs> you know, people might argue that the artistic 
feeling of it? Or... I've been wrestling with like yeah. how scary what you don't know is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, um, I guess the other side of that is like, you're hopeful of like how much more there is to know. In that vein, I think people long for control. And I think a lot of beauty regimens are about control. Mm. And a lot of procedures are about control. Mm -hmm. And I think being content with not knowing what you don't know. Like, I don't know how I'll age. Mm. Like, I don't know. But I've been taking it, you know, one day and one year at a time. And just deciding I'm going to be at peace with that. And that aging is a privilege, you know, like my father didn't really get to age. You know, it's strange when you watch people not be given the number of years you wanted for them. Mm. And then to think about how you're spending your years fighting yourself. Mm. And so I think for a lot of people... You start seeing it as a privilege. You start seeing aging as as a privilege. It absolutely is a privilege. We do not all get to grow old. Yeah. And to treat aging like it's ugly is part of our problem that we worship youth and don't necessarily worship wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so I think being okay with not knowing what your body's going to look like, being okay with not knowing how able-bodied you're going to be or what your spouse is going to look like, like accepting that, accepting that your whole life isn't within your control and there's no like scalpel or brush that's going to put you in the driver's seat of everything. Mm-hmm. It's a huge leap of faith but I think we all have to live life like we're willing to bet on ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Cause yeah. I, so with the outside of Justine, it's, I, I try to tell myself like it's when you, when you become vulnerable with others, you're also at risk of being let down. Absolutely. And so sometimes all you have is yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you would still be you. Yeah. You know, even if something happened with Justine or to Justine, and I would be me even if something happened yeah. with or to my husband. And having that like peace in ourselves that like we are going to get through what we need to get through until the end Mm -hmm. and having peace that like, we're still going to love ourselves, that we're still going to be here for ourselves. We're not going to abandon ourselves. I look at a lot of like the beauty industry and it's a form of self abandonment for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. And some people say, uh, some people will trivialize it and be like, this is silly. It's makeup. Don't wear it. If you don't want to, it goes beyond that. It goes into deep psychological realms for so many women and to just dismiss it as like a trivial thing Mm -hmm. is from an economic situation. Like that's an idiotic rejection. It's a like multi-billion dollar industry and it's Mm -hmm. only growing from a spiritual and psychological standpoint. Like it has a chokehold on people. So to dismiss it as like silly Mm -hmm. is not true. And it has deep social impacts on some people. There's very disparate impacts, whether it's like my friends starting to wax their lips at eight and Mm. shave their arms, you know, at nine because some boy called them an ape versus me like, you know, getting called a dirty blonde and being like sexualized 
for my hair changing, which is a normal thing at puberty. Like we're all going to deal with different things. And if we can't stand by ourselves, it's going to be a long life. Mm. We have to be willing to say, I'm not going to abandon myself. I don't care what that idiot boy on the bus said. I don't care if my boyfriend leaves. Like I Mm. can still be happy. I can still have integrity. I can still be joyful. I can still do the right thing by myself and by other people. People need to be willing to let things that aren't really meant for them pass them by Mm. and not have like a scarcity mindset that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. their life will pass them by because it won't. Or it will. Do you think life passes people by when they live their life well? No, I guess in the sense of, uh, well, no, I guess not. I was just like saying like if, if life tragically ends abruptly, um, it doesn't necessarily pass you by, but it doesn't. <laughs> no, I guess not. So never mind. I was like, wow, we're going to have a real George <laughs> Bailey conversation. What a wonderful life. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, you, you got to come back eventually whenever, whenever you're back in town, hopefully you, you guys, you know, do make it back to Chicago. Um, but, um, absolutely the goal. <laughs> where can people find you if you want to be found? I can be found on Instagram at not your manic pixie dream curl. Mm. I can, as opposed to girl, like do people say it? Yeah. Girl? Cause that <laughs> handle is taken. And because it initially started off as like me tracking my hair, I like, that's what it is. So I didn't anticipate it growing the way it did. And they can find me at you are fully And hopefully uh, by the time that this launches, Oh, that's the, a cool URL. Wait, is that for the journal or for just for yourself? It's, it's for publishing off of Instagram because doing my work on Instagram is important, but it's also like being at the threshold of hell. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the duality of mankind is absolutely going strong on Instagram. So it's, I'm not going to abandon Instagram or anything, but there are a lot of people who've asked me like, do you have a space away from Instagram to or talk it's like about this longer stuff. form content and yes. Yeah. And it will allow people to not have like ads for razors right after my stories. <laughs> people <laughs> have said that it's people send me screenshots every day of that because oh. the algorithm can't differentiate the fact that me talking poorly about those things <laughs> is not me advertising those <laughs> things. So unfortunately, algorithmically people get like a it's lot so of like makeup and shaving ads after my content and people are like, it's just difficult. And of course, psychologically that's like whiplash. So yeah. having a platform that is, not at the threshold of hell is going to like is helpful for people and having longer form content as much as I love reels is an important way of having these kind of nuanced discussions. Was that, was that genuine? Do you love reels? I do actually. I don't, you do really well with them. It like in the sense of they're very creative. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I do like them. I know a lot of people don't like them or they get like mad at the algorithm, but I've always loved algorithms. I loved the algorithmic part of online dating more than actual online dating. Mm. I ended up meeting my husband in person. So like the dating apps didn't get me to where I wanted to go, but what, as far as like utilizing it as a filter, 
it's like game theory. It's a puzzle. It's fun. So figuring out like what audios are trending, figuring out if like shorter versus longer videos, if voiceovers versus like actual dialogue or just B-roll content where everything's written. Like, and I heavily rely on my captions. Like some people don't do captions or very short ones. Mine are like essays. Um, I'm sure you get a lot of, a a lot of compliments on your captions because they're, they're, well thought out. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I get not necessarily direct compliments, but whenever I look at people who are like sharing my reel, you know, it'll say like view Captions. current, like live shares yeah. where people share it to their own story. Yeah. Often I'll see underneath, read the caption. Right. Okay. So that to me is kind of like the compliment, even if it wasn't paid directly to sure. me. Sure. Okay. So find me on Instagram. Find me at That's you are amazing. fully human. Um, Thank you, everyone. Uh, Till next time. Stay curious. Yeah. 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 All righty.